Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey everybody, welcome back to Micromobility. Um, today we will be looking at why micromobility represents a real opportunity to change how people get around in cities. Today I have with me, as always, Horace. How are you going, Horace? Hey, Oliver. I'm doing great. Thanks. Excellent. The bit that I really wanted to kick off with today, Horace, was picking up from where we left off. You had framed up micromobility as having two, potentially three, key characteristics. And those were the vehicles in this particular form of micromobility were utility focused. They were sub 500 kgs and then you were sort of open to whether or not they were electric or not. And I really wanted to unpack that a little bit more um, because there's two things that I really was thinking about as well with this, which is I actually think electric is key. We've had motorized petrol scooters and motorbikes for 60, 70, 80, 100 years. And I think that electric as a propulsion mechanism actually is a really key difference in terms of how to think about these vehicles versus their petrol powered counterparts and the second was how we think about infrastructure and whether or not micromobility and the solutions that are going to emerge in this require different infrastructure and how kind of confined are they to being able to operate on their own or more general infrastructure okay great questions let me take this firstly because i didn't want to identify electric drive as a characteristic not because I think the gasoline is viable. Gasoline is actually much more complex for micro vehicles. You have to deal with fluids and things leaking and oils and chemicals and cooling systems and thermal issues and vibration issues. None of these things are present with electric. So electric is much simpler, potentially much, much more compact. You can make a motor the size of a peanut. You know, there are micro motors which are super, super small. There's a motor inside your phone today that causes vibration, which is what you feel when you're switched on vibrate mode. Motors are really scalable. Batteries are becoming more and more scalable. The reason is that I don't want to preclude other technologies coming into use. And it could be things like hydrogen or something even more exotic coming forward later. I cannot imagine it, but I just don't want to define the category by technology. So having said that, my expectation is that all micromobility for the foreseeable future will be electric. If we fast forward 10 years from now, and we talk about electric, it'll seem redundant because everything will be so. So for the time being, I think by default, we're thinking electric or micromobility. It's the most likely one in the future. And it's completely obsoleting internal combustion. Internal combustion is, is, will become a historic anomaly in the history of transport as a sort of a blip that lasted about a century. Now, the second part was about infrastructure. So let me address this. I love going back to read historic accounts of how transport changed. And the interesting story is for internal combustion is when it arrived, how different it was how much infrastructure it required relative to the incumbents, which were public transit, trains, and also trams or rail transport within cities that was electric. And when the gasoline car actually was competing at the time with the bicycle, there were some cars which were electric, there were some cars which were steam, 
And, and as a result, this newcomer was the odd one because, again, it made noises, made smoke, made vibrations. It was tough to repair. It was really not a very elegant product. Plus, the fuel it needed, gasoline, was not commonly available. The very first long-distance trip in a car was taken by Martha, I think her name, Martha Benz, which is the wife of Carl Benz. And she was the one, actually, who encouraged him in a lot of the things that happened that made the car possible. But she took the first road trip, I think it was about 100 miles altogether. And the story goes that she had to plan her route as far as stopping to get fuel. And the only places you could get fuel in 1886 or 87 were pharmacies because they sold this stuff in, you know, a little probably one liter bottle that was used either for lighting lamps or cleaning. Gasoline actually is a solvent. And so she would have to plan her journey to stop and pick up a few bottles of this stuff and put it in, in her first car. And, you know, then you ask yourself, what happened to, to gasoline? Uh, how did we come to have enough of it so that what essentially were a million cars in the United States? There was no stations. There were no refineries that could make it in quantity. There were no pipelines to deliver it or trucks to deliver it. If you were to ask this question today, what would it take to build the gasoline infrastructure? People would say, well, it's too expensive. It's too dangerous, certainly. I mean, you have you know, trucks filled with thousands of kilograms of the stuff going at high speed and turning over and spilling everything and people dying. That's exactly what the question should be. Why do we tolerate that? Another side note to this is that during World War II, the U.S. refining infrastructure was mostly down in Louisiana. Oil was generally mined or pumped out of Texas. And so the refineries were fairly nearby in order also to have the resulting product shipped out of Louisiana, which was near the Gulf. And so you put it on a ship and then take it to other parts of the United States because it was a bulk product. The entire east coast of the United States, it depended on the shipments coming in via tankers that would, would take the gasoline from Louisiana up to Baltimore, New York, and Boston. Now, what happened in 1942 was World War II was going on. The U.S. started participating, and the German U-boats began to intercept this traffic from Louisiana up to the east coast and sank a whole bunch of tankers filled with gasoline. The U.S. was completely unprepared for anti-submarine warfare, especially close to its shoreline, which is where they were, and were completely floored, and they lost a huge amount of access to fuel. As a result, the U.S. decided to build pipelines, and there's a pipeline network from those same refineries to points in the United States all around. And we don't realize this now, but that's still in place that still delivers most of the fuel. Now, if it comes from abroad, the oil comes to the refinery, it still gets processed into gasoline and then piped to distribution centers from where the trucks take it the final mile. And the, the, my point here is that this is very expensive. This is very disruptive in terms of requiring infrastructure, and it's very dangerous. And of course, pipelines leak and there are all kinds of problems. So. And yet the U.S. went through this, the building of infrastructures, multiple infrastructures, gasoline stations, of which there's about 100,000 in the United States. And those have to have underground storage, which leaks, and it's all kinds of harm there. 
Now, many countries in the world don't have these infrastructures, and as a result, they depend a lot on refined product coming into the country and very expensively being delivered, which means that they're very expensive fuels and there are all kinds of problems. I'm thinking of Africa, for example, where even Nigeria, which has its own oil, doesn't have its infrastructure to deliver refined product. And as a result, oil, even though it is abundant, gasoline isn't. So this is the difference between having access to oil and having access to gasoline. My point is this, if you go back in history and ask, what did we go through to create the gasoline infrastructure? Just simple economics, simple matters of logistics. You realize how much effort went into that. And now when we ask the question, well, could we move forward towards an electric infrastructure? The answer is, wow, that's so much easier. In fact, it's trivial. A lot of the questions that deal with costs for well, we already have wiring, we already have transformers. We don't have storage, that's a problem, but gasoline is easily stored, whereas electric isn't. Sure, yeah, and we have production, etc. You see what I mean? Yeah, no, 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 I totally do, I totally do. And I, I think, especially for electric, we already have so much more of a head start in that regard, which is why on the propulsion side, I definitely see electric as being a lot stronger as an option, especially because if you think about it, you know, you can be in any household and plug your vehicle into charge. And so it's so much easier, actually, that that's a better solution than having it petrol powered. Because if you have to get it petrol powered, it's actually more of a hassle to have to go and collect it rather than just being able to plug it in where you live or work. Absolutely. Gasoline, both in terms of its production distribution conversion into motive power. It, all of these things are really complicated. They involve chemistry. Efficiency losses are tremendous. Heat losses to the atmosphere. All of these things, the machinery necessary wears out much faster. So from an engineering point of view, this is very suboptimal. What it offered, though, was, again, this storage capability, whereas electricity as you generate it, you need to consume it typically because batteries were really expensive. And that was the real breakthrough that occurred with lithium-ion batteries, which allowed us to get high storage densities and fairly light weights. Just a little history there again. Sorry, I'm, I love to get into these things because we don't realize some of this. But there were batteries, obviously, for over 150 years. I think the battery was invented in the 18th century, and this is a lead-acid battery. You know, lead is very heavy. It also needs to be bathed in water. And so this arrangement is very heavy, and also sloshing around like that makes it not very easy to take into a vibration environment. But it, generally, the density of energy per kilogram is very, very low. But what we saw during the 1990s is the development of new chemistries for batteries, and that included NICAD, which is nickel-cadmium technology, which was sort of early on in some batteries for consumer electronics. I know my first digital camera had NICAD batteries, which were heavy, lighter than lead acid, obviously, but fairly heavy relative to lithium ion. What was interesting is that already created an opportunity for certain new devices to deliver power to the user. The next thing is lithium ion, and lithium ion was put into the marketplace by Sony in camcorders, because camcorders, they were squeezing the size down to be really tiny. That was the way they were you know, showing off the Japanese ethos of miniaturization. And so these tiny camcorders were coming out, and, and the little battery packs that would snap to the back of a camcorder, those were the first lithium-ion 
consumer technologies. And by the early 2000s, lithium-ion was starting to diffuse into new technologies or new products. And we're still now getting to up the adoption curve of lithium-ion. Obviously, it's in all the phones we use. It's all the laptops we use. And Tesla's insight early on, before Elon Musk got involved, this is when the original founders started the company. They actually looked at lithium-ion in laptops and said, hey, the 18650 form factor, which is these cylindrical batteries, these standard form factor batteries were being used in laptops. And I remember having a Dell laptop, which was essentially this brick that would snap into it, and inside were, you know, six little batteries. And so they observed that and said, well, if we could just source lots and lots of these batteries, couldn't we connect them up together to make a huge battery that could power a car? And that was the insight for Tesla. It wasn't really all that of a breakthrough in chemistry because you were picking off-the-shelf batteries. And, and to this day, that's what they've done and expanded from 18650 to 2070 or 20 millimeters in diameter and 700 in height, which actually brings me to an interesting uh, historic point. Elon Musk will say that more or less they're the ones who came up with the 2070 and that this new technology is, although marginally bigger, the density of energy is much higher. It's 30% or 50% more than the predecessor 18650. But here's the interesting historic fact. The 2070 battery, that battery was actually first marketed in 2015 somewhere in Korea by Samsung. In the first product to demo it was an e-bike. And they showed how you can pack these into a module that would fit inside of a bike. This isn't an innovation in chemistry. This is just a standardization of the packaging, just like going from AA to AAA batteries. Or, But anyway, I'm getting off topic, <laughs> as usual. Yeah, no, no. So I guess that the bit that I really wanted to unpack a little bit was the retrofitting of a lot of cities around infrastructure. So, you know, in China, for example, all of the major cities where you can see faster and more rapid adoption of e-bikes and scooters and other things because there's bike lanes for example and their own dedicated infrastructure so whether or not that's required in order to be able to see the proper adoption and or in terms of if we're thinking about classifying it it's like well if you get a sort of light electric vehicle but it can't drive on the road and it sort of has to use bike lanes but then there's a big pushback to it how do we think through that yeah so let me answer again with a bit of history because if you think about also cities especially the older cities that predate the automobile, you can see how the automobile conformed to their infrastructures. So let's take the city street, take Champs-Élysées in France, take Fifth Avenue in New York, take London anywhere. It was designed much more than 100 years ago around the existing modality of transports, which were walking and horse-drawn transport. Into that, though, the first injection of new modalities into cities were the trams and not the car. In fact, the car was much later. And so this is, this is happening when people were also walking. And there were horses pulling also large vehicles which were filled with goods. So there wasn't horse-drawn personal transport, meaning that you're going to get around the city with your own vehicle. That just did not happen, ever. 
what you ended up was either walking as your own personal transport or sharing it in the form of a, a tram of some kind. By the way, it's, it's a long story, but trams were, were, the innovation there was tracks. So you had tracks, and of course that came from trains, and trains were not designed for cities because they were big and bulky and had long turn radiuses. And to adapt the train to the city, we had to go underground, which is what we have as the Underground Railway, which was the original name for the subway system, which was London, the earliest adopter. And that's why it's still today it's called the Underground. So when rail came into cities, very late, by the way, after its invention, they needed to figure out how to make tunnels on the cities. And that's a very expensive and complicated infrastructure, but it was necessary in London. It was necessary in Paris to handle the huge demand for transport. And it was a very challenging thing. Brunel famously worked on this project, and many catastrophes occurred, floodings, people dying, and so on, in order to build these tunnels under the cities to accommodate trains, which were still steam-powered. If you can imagine a steam train underground, that's what they had to be initially, and, and that became electrified. Now, the reason I say all this is, again, you can see how much trauma was involved moving from one mode to another, from walking with horse-pulled trams to moving to underground, and then only much later did we deal with cars. By the way, the first personal transportation vehicle was the bicycle. And when it came into cities, it was just a crazy revolution. Is that the safety bike or like the penny farthing? Yeah, the penny farthing was initially the first mass market bike. So that was not very, very mass market because it was so hard to use. <laughs> yeah. But it was the only one that gave you some speed because at the time you sat on the bike and you kicked. And that was the original ones that were going back 200 years. But those never caught on because you couldn't go much faster than walking and you couldn't go uphill and you had no mechanical leverage. And so the penny farthing, which was this giant wheel in the front and then a tiny wheel in the back, that gave you a little bit more speed, but it was hard to ride and very dangerous. And so those wheelmen, the first riders of these things were kind of like guys are showing off basically. But then the safety bicycle, which is two equal sized wheels connected with a double triangle frame, which is the classic bicycle design we see even today. Just that configuration, when that came out, it just changed entirely the cycling world, and it's still with us today. But the safety cycle was what allowed so many more people to ride. In fact, women began to ride, and, and, and it was very liberating for women because they suddenly had the freedom of movement. Uh, they had to actually design new clothing for women in order for them to participate in Women who wore this new style clothing were considered rebels and, and all this other stuff. is sort of like the women's suffrage movement coincided with this. And it's rather well known among cycling historians how liberating this was to women and how big of a force. Susan B. Anthony, an American suffragette, early campaigner for women's rights, she actually claimed that the bicycle was the most liberating instrument in the history of, of humanity. It changed things like the way people were courting each other. Uh, it, it reduced the rate of incest because suddenly people could travel further. And so people began, quote unquote, dating across villages. You used to not be able to leave your village. So if you wanted to courtship, you'd do it inside of a very small community. And suddenly with a bike, a man or a woman could suddenly travel to a neighboring village and, and meet someone else. And that was such a big deal. It changed the populations of both France and the UK. It literally changed the DNA pool. You can't underestimate the power of this vehicle because at the time there were no alternatives. This predates the automobile. 
trains were just not flexible enough to allow this sort of like spontaneity and mass consumption. Trains were scheduled and only went to limited places. So villages didn't have access to rail unless they traveled again long distances to get to a rail station. So all this was happening late 19th century. People think that the horse was actually the victim of the car, but horses were really for transporting goods. They were beasts of burden. I mean, only the wealthy could, could ride horses for fun. And this image we have of people riding horses for transport, that was maybe came from the Wild West movies, the, the cowboys. But in cities, it just never happened. You can see the videos. You can read the accounts. It's just... Where would you park it? You lived in an apartment in the building. I mean, <laughs> no, it's true. It's uh, it's sort of like the same the same issue with parking that you have in most downtown cities anyway. You know, oh damn, I have to go park it down in the the parking stable. So what's interesting though, so the historians look at the city layout and they looked at, they look at the streets and they they ask, well, they didn't get any bigger. The streets we have are hundreds of years old, and so what happened was as the automobile came into use. It was just mixing in with all the other modes. So people were walking and dogs and horses and kids. There was a manure everywhere from the horses. There was like open sewers. It was a big mess, even up until the 1920s. And over time, because the automobile was so, the delta between the speed was so high, they often had collisions. They often killed people. And so they began to put rules into effect, which segregated the automobile from the other modes. In particular, pedestrians. So pedestrians were segregated to sidewalks. And so suddenly you were restricted as a pedestrian what you could do. During the 1920s, the crisis was so severe that there were campaigns by mothers because they had lost their children. They treated the automobile as a plague that it literally killed thousands and thousands of people. That there hadn't been a trauma of mortality in the United States, unless there had been a previous plague. I mean, you go from no one dying in transport incidents to thousands of people dying in transport incidents. And this was so traumatic that there were campaigns and articles being written and posters being drawn about, you know, the menace of the automobile, the greatest, the the grim reaper and all that other stuff, because children were used to just running out in the street, playing, and here would come a car from nowhere at high speed, and then it would cut down the child. And that was just so traumatic. And of course, the vehicles were very, very unsafe to begin with. And they were driven by, by people who didn't have any skill and, and so on and so on. The trauma was tremendous. And, and so because of that, the authorities began not, and this is the controversy to this day, they began not to be restricting the car so much, although it did gain a restriction in terms of having a driver's license, signaling and having some safety systems, but basically they segregated the pedestrians away from the car. And then they introduced things like lights, crosswalks, and started to teach children to look both ways before crossing the street. So it was the pedestrian who essentially was made to conform to the automobile. But the street didn't change, or I should say the size of the street didn't change. We just ended up to carving it into segments. So here's the segment for you people on foot, and here's the segment for you people on wheels. By the way, there's, there's potentially some rail in the middle of it as well. And so this all was beginning to be sort of divided up because the, the real estate of the street could not change. The buildings, you couldn't tear them down. And if it was a new development, then it was built automatically around these new guidelines. And this is why anything built after the 1920s is sort of distinct in architecture and design and layout and so on. And so 
The point is to think that a road is a very finite and very precious piece of real estate. It is tends not to expand once it's built, and if it expands, it doesn't really gain that much capacity. And so it's a tiny little straw through which everything must flow in, inside of a three-dimensional space, which is a city or a community. And that's a very tiny amount of space allocated to movement of objects and people. My point simply is that people think this is some great big deal to ask for infrastructure for bikes or micromobility. We've been asking for infrastructure for all new modalities for 200 years starting with trams, continuing with trains, continuing with cars. All these came later, and the, even bicycles sort of had to ask for a little bit. The early cyclists asked for smooth road surfaces because they were forced to ride on dirt or on cobblestone. So we ended up with smooth roads before we had the automobile because of the demand of cyclists. So cyclists, again, influenced a lot of the automotive stuff that came later, even on the infrastructure side. So my point then is that we always have had demands on these streets coming from new modes, and they've been met usually with reluctance, but they've been met because you have demand. And so nowadays, with the car incumbent, we think that, well, the world has always been this way. Well, it, no, the car made it this way, and now it's time to decide whether the car needs to step aside or at least carve out some more real estate on the street. So what I believe, and I think I'm not, uh, it's not just my belief, I, I learned this from others. If you look at the, how city planners are thinking about street design, and this is very important, they're saying what's basically now 90% car and 10% other. It's going to be at the point where the car gets about 20%. The amount of street real estate, okay, imagine two lanes in each direction for cars. Well, that's going to end up being one lane in each direction for cars, or maybe just one lane altogether, and that the street becomes one way. With the rest of the space, it'll be allocated to public transit, cycling lanes, green areas, which people are finding out that if you have trees in the street, if you have street furniture, which is benches and trash containers and other things that break up the street, that actually proves both the livability, but also the traffic, and the, it's conducive to a much better street design. So street furniture, rail infrastructure, all these things are coming, and new streets, especially in Europe, are being designed this way. And old streets are being converted to this. And so there are many, many examples of it, and it's happening slowly now, but as always, it starts out slowly, but it comes faster and faster as the benefits are becoming obvious. And do you think that, you know how effectively you had the development of the car and then what cities ended up hyper-optimizing for cars? And so you had like the New York example where they got rid of entire neighborhoods in order to be able to build a giant freeway down the side of Manhattan. What would a hyper-optimized set of infrastructure and roading and cities look like for micromobility solutions in your mind? Well, I think it's actually a lot easier to build for micromobility because these vehicles being lighter and smaller are going to be requiring less space than the predecessor technologies. In fact, what I expect will happen is there'll be more of them. We'll actually end up with like bike jams and we'll end up with micromobility jams of some kind. And we'll be scooters fighting with bikes, fighting with quads and all this other stuff happening. And then we'll get to another whole political discussion. But yeah, I think that generally speaking... Uh, I'll give you some data points. You mentioned New York. I mean, the Brooklyn Bridge was built before the automobile. Again, 1880 technologies. That bridge was not used for cars until 1940s. It was used for walking, and it's still to this day you can walk on the Brooklyn Bridge, which is unusual. But also mostly it was trains or the 
underground railway, which was the New York subway, but the number of passengers transported across the Brooklyn Bridge was an order of magnitude higher before it was converted to automobiles. When you switch to cars, you actually reduce efficiency. And so when you switch back out of cars, you're going to get back, and whether that's micromobility or transit. Transit, by the way, we should talk about that for a minute. Transit, uh, the only concern I have with it is that it doesn't scale as quickly as personal mobility because transit inherently is packetized. So yeah, you put people, in, and it's very efficient when you, everybody shares that same vehicle, but it cannot deliver people everywhere. And typically, it doesn't schedule itself as efficiently as what people need. So you have to have timetables. Both of those things, which is access points and timetables, restrict the accessibility of the mode, which is why personal transportation is always going to trump public transportation. The problem has been that we equate in our minds personal transportation with automobiles. But if you say, no, personal transportation is micro vehicles, then suddenly you're saying, whoa, 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 now this thing really looks good relative to transit. So I think transit is going to do well, and you will see that evolve. I think cities are going to plan more of it. But it's not as possible to disrupt with public, you see. Private has a tendency to be disruptive, and it has been just in the, from the evidence of the car itself and the bicycle before it. And so now we'll see again that step forward. And also, these the, you'd mentioned these giant highways that were built on the sides of Manhattan, and that's true. They replaced a lot of the shipping infrastructure that used to be. If you went up the west side of Manhattan, there used to be all these facilities for docking. The Titanic would dock up at 55th Street, and then you had all these shipping lines, which each had their own parking spots up and down the entire side of Manhattan. That's how Manhattan came to be the Hong Kong of its day, all the shipping came into it. It was literally docked right up against the side of the island. And once shipping changed technologically to containerization and moved away from the city, they took that real estate and put highways right over not just the shipping points, but all the warehouses. So a lot of the East Coast cities that had ports like Baltimore, Boston, the seashore was the place where highways were placed because infrastructure suddenly became available and it was becoming dilapidated and unfortunately replacing therefore with no-go zones of another kind and that's where we're stuck with today. And This was a very big political discussion occurring in the 1960s and 70s as to whether this was desirable or not. There's a great book I should point everybody to, it's called The Big Roads, which is tells the story of the interstate highway system in the United States, which took half a century to build. And, but it's only an interesting story because it shows you, again, how much effort we put into and how much we terraformed our cities and our lives and our countries in order to accommodate a new mode, a single new mode, which is the automobile. And now we're just asking, could we share some of that infrastructure with new modes and perhaps over time shaping it slightly differently. That's what's happening, I think, in Europe now. There's a point I just want to go back to that you mentioned, which was around this idea of throughput. Because I can see for so many cities, you know, to your point around transit, you might be able to move tens of thousands of people on a particular line. But if all of a sudden you've got a kind of a city that's spread out, people are traveling from one to another node, if all of a sudden your throughput becomes clogged because the size of the vehicle is so large and you have an increasing number of nodes, the connections between those nodes actually increase exponentially because you have you know, effectively connections between those different nodes and traditional transit wouldn't solve that issue. But well, that's where like micromobility and micromobility solutions are effective. If you've got a small 
human-sized vehicle that's electric that allows for someone to be able to go and navigate their way through an urban context under their own power and according to their own timeframes, that, to me, strikes me as incredibly attractive for cities. Absolutely. And it makes sense in the first principles and physics and the mathematics of it is so obvious. What is bizarre is how perverse the system that we have today is in terms of efficiency. And what the car had going forward, what made it so disruptive was that it just gave a lot of freedom to individuals at the potential cost for the community, but that's life. Sometimes life is not fair. And so what I'm saying with micromobility is that you can still obtain this type of freedom of individuals to travel as they wish, while at the same time getting much higher efficiency. The dichotomy between efficacy and efficiency is understated, I think, typically. And so what I'm thinking is how do we gain efficiency on private transit or personal mobility while gaining more flexibility, which I think is the other flip side is like, can we get more flexibility out of public systems which are already efficient, but not as effective along the dimension that we care about. So you see, it's not, it's not one or the other. It's a question of can we actually move in the right direction with both? Yeah, there's one final part that I was just thinking about as you were talking there, and actually comes back to my anecdotal thinking about the fact that I got an electric bike after I had got a moped. And I got a moped because it didn't require a motorcycle license, which in New Zealand is quite challenging to get. And then it was like, oh, well, I can go get an e-bike. At the moment, nobody I know anywhere requires a license for an e-bike, but it strikes me as one of these things that what are the opportunities there to keep the barriers to entry as low as possible for private transport to be able to be scaled? Yeah. In fact, the driver's license is a byproduct of the carnage that occurred with automobiles. You had to invent the driver's license. It didn't exist. And so, yes, I think that one of the things that I also talk about in terms of boundary markings is the driver's license. I say the distinction between micromobility and personal motorized mobility is in your wallet, that card that says you have to have a license for one but not the other. And when you're thinking about it also as an entrepreneur, if you want to draw a line and say my modality or my innovation does not require licensing, I'm going to try to always stay below that line. Okay, That's one way to define your, your space, to categorize, if you will. Anything that doesn't require license is desirable for the purpose of getting started because it's easier to get the ball rolling. And when you have limited capital, that's very important. And that's not to say that over time we won't bring some degree of licensing. I think there are going to be safety concerns arising when these motors become perhaps more powerful. Already they're regulated in terms of limits on power, torque, or speed. And these are somewhat arbitrary right now, and nobody quite knows what the right boundary is. We can talk at length, and people debate a great deal about e-bikes and scooters and other new modes as to you know who allows them, why are they banned in places and not in others. Segway is a classic kind of poster child for this problem, because here was a new mode invented probably way ahead of its time, which never found a way to succeed because it didn't have infrastructure and it didn't fit in anything that was pre-existing. So it couldn't go on the sidewalks and it couldn't go on the street. And so it was orphaned because it just had no natural habitat. The thing about e-cycling and shared cycling is that you can think of it as the introduction of an electric motor into a fabric of infrastructure, which is the road system. 
and that electric motor finds a habitat through the bicycle because the bicycle is the only thing that fits into the infrastructure. But over time, the expectation is that it will terraforming is the idea, sort of like it reform and reshape the earth so that the electric motor fits and rebuilds the world around it and it's optimized for it. And we don't quite know how that's going to look. The thing about the historic example of the Segway is that here's an electric motor with some technology, batteries and, and, and gyroscopes, which allowed it to really revolutionize personal transport. And yet, it, because it couldn't find a compatible, conformable infrastructure for itself and couldn't build it, it died. And now it's being reborn as a scooter or hoverboard. But a hoverboard is also a fad and it dies because it doesn't have an acceptable entry point. But the electric bike may be that one thing that says, okay, wait a minute, we have something called bike lanes because we've had bikes for a hundred years. We have them already accepted on the street, although admittedly very unsafe as a condition, but the streets were initially designed for these things. So, you know, you see how that happens. And you're at this point in time when the universe is changing. By the way, this all feels deja vu to anyone who kind of lived through the early cell phone era an early personal computer era where if, if you remember the early networking, you know, we had to piggyback on top of these archaic technologies. So uh, the way I talk about infrastructure is it's very frustrating. It's, I don't give an answer, but I simply say that time solves this. You have to have a foothold market. You have to have a way to enter. It has to have the ability to evolve, right? Once it has an, a foothold and it can move forward, and the rate of change is unpredictable, but there are some things we can count on and sort of like inexorably this will happen because it is so much better. And that's where we are, I think. I think we're at that moment right now where we're realizing the potential of this thing. We're realizing how powerful it is to have a miniature motor plus a battery in miniature. And it sort of has a foothold. It has proven to stick to something. It has found a niche. And that Nietzsche is not trivial. It's in the millions and millions of people using it. So um, now the question is, how do we move beyond this niche? How does it evolve? How does it impact everything else? And how long it'll take, which is, I think, the most difficult question. <laughs> <laughs>